Hey, before we start the show, I want to share something with you. You're about to take part in a rich conversation, and sometimes that might leave you wanting more. Well, we've got more for the most motivated among us. And if that's you, I'd like to invite you in to an inner circle of sorts. Here's how it works. Just take out your smartphone and send me a text. I want you to text HTSPOD, all one word, to 855-909-1350. Once you've texted me, you won't miss the bonus conversation we're having and any chance for us to connect further. That's all I got. So enjoy the show. You don't get as far as the motherfuckers you talk to for no reason. You'll be successful as the motherfuckers that you talk to for no reason. What I mean is, if you're spending your day talking to a nigga that ain't got nothing going on, what the fuck kind of information can he offer you? Can he help you learn something? Can he teach you something in the conversation? 50 Cent. Straight and to the point. So far this season, we've looked at the road towards an individual's peak expression and the characteristics of the individuals who embark on that journey. While it's definitely not easy, it is fairly simple. Do you know what's not simple? Groups. Frankly, the singular individual person isn't just a lone wolf actor in the world. We work together. And to avoid that fact, would be to avoid one of the most profound human capacities, which is collaboration. Group dynamics are a study in and of themselves. And in this final episode of the first season of the podcast, we're here to look at the peak expressions in the collective. I'm Logan Gelbrick, and I'm here to invite you to take up more leadership as a way to better understand life's most important topics. This is the Hold the Standard Podcast. If I can be personal with you, I've got to say that I've got a team bias. I've seen the power of team on the field, and in the business arena. If I have my way, by the end of this episode, you'll understand the power of a high-performing group better than when we started. And like any high-performing team, this group dynamic must be curated. Here's the one and only Oprah Winfrey. All of you leaving here have the potential for enormous success. There's a price that comes with that. People don't always like you. And they're not always happy for you. And if you surround yourself with people who are not accustomed to your success, they become fearful. They become scared because you are reflecting back something to them that they don't recognize. Now, they're not going to say, you know, I'm very fearful because you're reflecting back to me something I don't recognize. 
They're going to say, you know what they're going to say. They're going to say, who she thinks she is. Who she thinks she is. That only happens when you are around people who do not mean and want and aspire to the best for you. People who want the best for you want you to be your best. So my greatest advice to you is to surround yourself with people who are going to fill your cup until your cup runneth over. That was Oprah's 2012 commencement address to the graduates at Spelman. I hear her opening remarks dividing the population. Some people support and bring out your best, while others don't. And this is what I mean when I say that great teams are curated. There's a filter. And we'll talk more about these details later in the episode, but for now, let's keep it simple. When it comes to high-performance groups, not everyone is invited. Oprah hasn't just reached remarkable levels of success. She's transcended herself many times over. And if anyone knows the attrition associated with excellence, it's her. It's clear. Oprah's teams are chosen with excellence in mind. And according to Gary V. Excellence rubs off. Start trimming your friend group and start adding to your friend group predicated on what you want to be. There is such a smart hack to like, and it's really the, like that cliche thing, like you are like the byproduct of the people, like all that, that's real. And I can tell you right now, I know everybody on my team, they're different. I'll tell you one thing that I can tell you firm about DRock and Nate for sure. I'll give you those two examples. They're off fuckload more confident they were than they were when they came into my life because my confidence rubbed off on them. Now, that sounds inspiring, doesn't it? The very nature of the greatest teams in the world is perpetuating greatness. While that seems obvious, it's shockingly rare. Motivational speaker from episode two, Les Brown. You want to begin to get all the toxic people out of your life. Hello. Energy drainers, get them out of your life. See, ladies and gentlemen, it takes a lot of energy to reach your goal. It takes a lot of emotional, mental, and spiritual energy to reach your goal. And you can run faster with a hundred who want to go than with one around your neck. So there are two kinds of relationships. Sid Simon talks about this. Nourishing relationships and toxic relationships. Nourishing relationships are the relationships that inspire you. They motivate you. They bring the best out of you. Toxic relationships are relationships with people that always criticize you. All they can do is find fault. All they can do is just exploit your weaknesses. All they can do is remind you of the mistakes that you've made in the past. These people are bad for your health. Toxic people can run your blood pressure up. One apple can spoil a whole barrel. One negative energy drainer can spoil your whole life. I know people whose lives have been ruined because somebody wasn't good for them. See, there are some people that aren't good for you. Hello? They aren't good for you. You've got to get them out of your life. The groups, teams, and communities that magnify our shine 
are high speed, low drag. Conversely, the people that don't support that criteria are, well, a drag. One of the key characteristics of a high-performance collective is how these groups share information. It's often direct, improvement-oriented, and sadly, increasingly socially unpopular. In fact, the most valuable information to a high-performance team is the information that will make the team better. While it might not be a popular opinion, the type of information that supports change and improvement is specifically disconfirming information or negative feedback. Unfortunately, for the popularity of sharing this important information, giving and receiving this kind of tough love is difficult. And as a result, it's unpopular. Dan Pena is a Mexican-American businessman with a net worth of over $500 million. And he has a knack for building businesses. He also didn't do it sugarcoating people. Olympic athletes say, you're as hard as my Olympic coach was when I won two gold medals. That's the kind of person you want in your life. Not somebody that agrees with you. Not somebody that says, it's all right, you can try again. You're only 26. You've got the rest of your life. That's crap. Now look at all these people in their 30s, 40s. Somebody told them that bullshit 25 years ago. Now look at them. Somewhere along the line, organizations all over the world signed an unspoken contract to support a culture of lies for the sake of avoiding difficult feedback? Developmental psychologist Dr. Kara Miller is one of the most foremost figures leading high-performance culture. Keep in mind, one of our mutually favorite books is titled The Perils of Accentuating the Positive. Here's what I want. I want meaningful work to do, and I want meaningful relationships to do that work in. If the people I'm in relation work relationships with have to spend their time covering for my limitations and compensating for me, that makes our relationships less meaningful. Also, if I'm doing work knowing that I'm covering for my limitations, my weaknesses, if you will, and knowing that other people know about my limitations and my weaknesses, but they act like I don't have them and they spend their time covering up for them, my work is less meaningful to me. I'm, I'm not my best self <laughs> when I have energy leaking towards, I know we all know I have limitations and let's just all keep pretending like I don't have them. Because... Number one, I'm actually working with leaders and I'm trying to get them to acknowledge their limitations and see the possibilities for growth, right? What becomes possible when you acknowledge your limitations? Well, the real dumb answer is you can actually address them. You can turn those limitations into growth or opportunity. So who wants to live in a limited universe and grow at the same time? They are, those are mutually exclusive. You can't live in a limited universe and be highly invested in keeping the, those limitations and try to grow bigger. It doesn't, we can't do those two things. So I think the biggest 
the reason this is the biggest problem facing organizations and leaders is they all say they want to grow. Also, they all play the game, I don't have limitations and neither do you. (laughs) The answer to this is you build a system where we're extremely interested in limitations. We're extremely interested in the organization's limitations in order to gain market share. Where are we limited? In which category can we not achieve more? Why? Let's figure it out and then let's move those limitations. Let's move obstacles. Let's grow in the ways we need to grow. Similarly, if our department wants to grow or achieve more in the organization, we want to hit our numbers. We get raised every year and we want to up our game. Well, What limited us from achieving them last year? Let's get interested in those limitations so that we can move them. Doing that individually serves all the rest of those layers. If a leader is highly interested in figuring out what their limitations are in order to move them and grow past them, and the team is interested in discovering their limitations so they can grow and move them, The organization is interested in addressing their limitations and growing and move past. The entire industry can do this, right? When one organization leads out ahead. If you're not interested in the limitations of the people that work for you and how to help them move those, you're not developing them. So you are managing and you are keeping a limited world. That offering could be the most profound of the season, in my opinion. And it exposes a phenomenon specific to groups. You see, if you ask most any group of individuals if they want the meaningful work and meaningful relationships that Dr. Miller just spoke about, they'd say unequivocally, yes. However, once inside of the group dynamic, those individuals will almost never behave that way. Said differently, entire groups can want the same things from an experience. And that same group will often act in opposition to their mutually shared goal. I share this example often before I teach a seminar literally anywhere in the world. I'll say uh, something like, who here has been to one of those dinner parties where seven, eight, nine, twelve people get together for a dinner of acquaintances? And everyone raises their hand. And then I say, 100% of the people there wish for it to be fun and a relaxing time. Then everyone sits down for dinner and awkwardly waits for the person next to them to lead this fun, relaxing energy. Of course, no one does. It's brutal and uncomfortable. And 100% of the attendees drive home that night wishing it was a good time. This is why leadership is so important. And as you know, the call to action of this entire podcast is to answer life's most important questions by taking up more leadership. Now, the difficult dynamics and complexity of group behavior isn't all bad news and frustration. Our social brain power is invaluable. And human beings' greatest evolutionary advantage is our ability to be highly collaborative. 
Dr. Matthew Lieberman, the lab director at UCLA's Department of Psychology and Biobehavioral Sciences. Every one of us is a mind reader countless times each day. Let me give you an example. Imagine I had come up on stage followed by someone holding a gun to my head. And I then proceed to declare that Justin Bieber is the greatest musical talent of this or any other generation. You would have easily moved from the visible signs, the gun, my gender, my age, to the invisible, my thoughts and feelings, my fear of being shot if I don't do as I've been instructed. Now, our mind reading abilities aren't perfect, far from it. But it is extraordinary that we can do this at all, given that none of us have ever seen a thought or feeling. The fact that we can peer into the minds of those around us and imagine their responses to nearly any situation gives us an unparalleled capacity for cooperation and collaboration. This is unquestionably a social superpower. Now, you might think that this is just another application of our general ability to think and reason analytically, to use our big old prefrontal cortex to solve nearly any problem we're given. You might think this, but you'd be wrong. Our ability to think socially is so essential to our survival that evolution gave us a separate brain system just for this kind of thinking. See, on the outer surface of your brain, there's this network that's just for doing almost any kind of analytical thinking you can imagine. Logical reasoning, down to holding a phone number in mind while you hunt for your phone. And then there's this other network, more on the midline of the brain, that's just for social thinking, for mind reading. And we know that this network for social thinking tends to be quieted down by other kinds of thinking. Okay? So it's as if These two networks for social and analytical thinking are on two ends of a seesaw. And when one goes up, the other goes down. We also know that this network for social thinking comes on like a reflex. Whenever you finish doing any kind of analytical thinking, whenever your brain gets a chance to rest, to idle, this network for mind reading pops up immediately. This network for social thinking coming on preemptively before you walk into the next situation of your life gets you ready to see the actions around you in terms of the minds behind them. Evolution has made a bet that the best thing for your brain to do in any spare moment is to get ready to see the world socially. Maybe this evolutionary advantage can support our ability to curate groups like we discussed at the opening of the show. Here's creative juggernaut, writer and director, Tyler Nielsen on gravitating towards people who support collective excellence. We recognize uh, a beautiful, and I don't want to say insanity because it's not insane, but I recognize that in people and then gravitate towards them. So beyond like you might be into baseball and exercise and um, uh, self-realization, and I might be into uh, writing. Like it's all the same underneath the like the tangible levels of like I don't pick up as much weight as you, but I see something in you that is vibrating at the same vibration I want to vibrate at. Without tooting our own horn, Tyler just accidentally described 
the collective version of skill transfer that we discussed in depth in the last episode. For him, there's some recognizable, valuable, transferable trait in my athletic career and path in business that has some osmosis effect to his ability to write award-winning movie scripts. But before we get too warm and fuzzy on the power of admiration and connection, it's important to remember that the people and groups that draw the best out of us might not always feel warm and fuzzy. Former UFC fighter, actor, and co-founder of Caveman Coffee, Tate Fletcher. You've got pillars around you in your life that are sounding boards, that are loved ones, that you know they can tell you the hardest truth about you, and they feel comfortable enough because you've made yourself available to hear that truth, and that's your responsibility. But you, if you get special shit like that around, you better position yourself correctly in that and, and, and maintain those things because that, that's the things that balances your heart and your soul through life, man. That, that's what I think. You know, At the end of the day, it's, like, it's that. It's those relationships that we have and, and the people that we're doing this thing with. I mean, it's infinitely special. I find Tate's cutting truth inspiring and important. But just as an observation, I want to hold space for those of you who are listening that find references to quote-unquote tough love and this advocacy for negative feedback to be scary and unapproachable. Often the cut-and-dry nature of high-performance systems can be villainized. I hear it all the time. Hell, I'll finish a lecture on developmental systems and someone will raise their hand and say, but, you know, should we call it constructive criticism? I mean, negative feedback just feels so... (sighs) Sure, call it whatever you want. Here's my thought. Maybe the fact that we shy away, even from the name of what we call the most important information for development, speaks to how much we're set up for failure to speak it and hear it. The greatest lie, in my opinion, is to prop up group dynamics that edit the truth. When we're in families, teams, organizations, and even communities that share the positive parts of the truth, but restrict the negative and call it loving, we're robbing each other. And that definitely isn't love. It's a self-sealing trap where the group agrees to withhold the truth in a disingenuine way that at best inhibits peak performance, but at worst undermines truth and our ability to do meaningful work and have meaningful relationships. Dr. Miller hits this challenge of not having global consensus on what great group systems can do head on. If this book or any of the work that I do contributes to people getting set up to answer the questions of ultimate meaning, am I worth being here? Am I worthy of love? Um, If it does that, we actually have a better opportunity to solve the big problems that most everybody else would probably name as the global crises. Um, But if we don't understand how money makes our lives more meaningful, 
or how the natural world makes our lives more meaningful or how education makes our lives more meaningful or religion makes our lives more meaningful or how we steward our bodies makes our lives more meaningful. If we don't have good, deep answers, convincing answers to those questions, we won't do anything to improve them. And I don't think we have satisfactory answers for that writ large. I don't think we have good global consensus on those things, on why those things are meaningful problems to solve. While Dr. Miller is referencing the global impact of how we work together, I think that change on that scale is ripe for improvement first on the micro level. I believe that the most important work of today is to build systems, companies, and teams that by their own nature improve with time, such that people can show up in wholeness and do the kind of fringe-level work that is meaningful and fulfilling. The fact of the matter is we must be able to build the system in a way that supports the exchange of the most important information for improvement, which just so happens to be feedback. You can hear in Nicely's voice the importance and difficulty of walking that line in a managerial position in his brand of coffee shops called Minotti's. Oh man, you need it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the questions in our in our uh, interview process too. Is like, you know, how do you respond to criticism? You know, and yeah, truthfully, we always want it to be constructive. You know, criticism. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we'll have a customer that will just want to dish some stuff at us. You know, well, how do you? I'm I'm even curious sometimes to hear from you know a prospective uh, employee like how they would deal with that. You know, um, but criticism and you know feedback is crucial. You know, I mean. I like to do my best to serve a drink and and ask, you know, like, well, what does it need? Or how's that how's that feeling to you? You know what I mean? And and you know, be willing uh and open to hear, um, and I could take it a little hotter or I might like it a little sweeter. You know what I'm saying? And um and then use that as information to better serve them in the future, you know, and uh um if not right at the moment, you know. Um so and then it's tricky too, because like when customers come up to our bar and they hear me actively giving feedback, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it could be tricky because ultimately I want to build the confidence of that person on bar, right? And the customers uh, sort of trust in them that, you know, oh, they're, you know, receiving a worthwhile product, you know? Um, and sometimes that's a double-edged sword because like they could feel like, oh, well then why isn't that guy making my coffee? You know what I mean? And it's like, well, nah, man, you got to, you know, it's very public. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it could be tricky, you know, like I try, uh, I do my best to, you know, lend any feedback at moments where it's like, you know, we're maybe not necessarily in front of customers and stuff, you know, I, I don't like being a Gordon Ramsay type, you know That's what right. I'm saying? And I've definitely, I've had those types in my, you know, my past to make me who I am, you know, and I still appreciate those experiences, you know, but I, I want to, I want to believe that there's always a better way to, you know, coach someone, you know? So far, we have acknowledged the importance of curating the people around you for individual and collective benefit. We've outlined the distinct human power of collaboration. And we've started to understand that the paradox of rich environments for growth and meaning are not without the sharing of difficult truths that will make us better. 
but you likely don't know what to do about that yet. Well, you're in luck because we now know that there are specific actionable ways to execute on the group version of pursuing a peak expression. Deuce Jim, for example, aspires to exist in rarefied air of what the pioneering developmental psychologist Robert Keegan calls deliberately developmental organizations, or DDOs. These are organizations whose structure is built around a double bottom line. One bottom line, of course, is profits. And the other is, equally importantly, the development of the members of the organization. This is at odds with the group dynamics that often prevail in today's workplace, which is that we create workspaces that specifically restrict areas for improvement. After all, it doesn't seem to pay in those environments to have areas for improvement at all. Mistakes are hidden. Younger parts of us are withheld. Keegan often suggests that most people go to work and perform two full-time jobs. The first, of course, is the job. And the second is covering for all of our deficiencies. By its own nature, this strategy leeches from our ability to perform well at our actual work. And it ironically undermines excellence. What is the alternative to taking up work as a performance? And that alternative is to take up work as an opportunity for practice more than performance. Right. And this is the irony that a high-performance culture in the conventional business sense, or at least a highest-performing culture, may not actually be, at the psychological level, a performance culture at all, so much as it is a kind of coaching and practicing kind of culture. Once you take up the position that what you're doing at work is basically practicing and trying to get better. And I mean, I I was so struck, like at Bridgewater, I I first interviewed a lot of the people who were working on the culture and who were in management positions. And I, I was not surprised, you know, that they were so engaged with the culture itself. But, you know, I said, look, you're a hedge fund and, you know, I want to talk to some of the people who are, you know, doing the heart of the work. I mean, you know. Bankers, investment people, traders. Uh, I want to talk with them. And uh, so they, the next day they set me up with a group of them, and I said at the very beginning, you know, I'm really intrigued with your culture, and I want, you know, eventually to talk with you about that and the way that, you know, you interact with it. But, I mean, you're also in a particular business, and I wanted to talk with you guys because you are close to the heart of the business itself. I mean, you know, trades and you know, the things that uh, investors do. And they just looked at me like I had two heads and they said, you know, we're going to try to be nice, Bob, and just kind of uh, chalk this up to the fact that you've just started researching us, but you couldn't ask a question like that if you actually understood how we operate. You want me to talk with you about how we think about investing and credit and valuing, you know, macroeconomic indicators and so on, and then you want us to talk about the culture. That's impossible, which to me, that was so intriguing. You know, what they said is, look, and listen, imagine this coming from a banker, you know, not from, uh, you know, a, a human potential expert 
they would say, look, I, one of the things that's great about working here is I get up every day and I know very clearly what I'm working on myself. I'm working on myself. There's no way that I do anything, you know, whether it's, you know, analyzing, you know, some macroeconomic indicator that I'm not also connected to, you know, what I know is my weak side and certain tendencies that can get me in trouble. That's how pervasive the culture is. And the feedback becomes truly like nourishment as opposed to something that you clench your fists and hope you can kind of get through the the torture. That paradigm-shifting view of work as practice is profound. Keegan also offered the wholeness we discussed earlier. By integrating the self into the work, rather than the common practice of segregating work from self, creates a culture of beautiful tension where every member of the team is both welcomed and responsible for his or her development. No one is off the hook. How do you do this, you ask? You'll need a mechanism to filter for and develop two specific things, trust and willingness. I recommend this being a two-part process of, first, a rite of passage before taking up responsibility on the team, and second, a mechanism for ongoing development. The rite of passage ensures that members of the team demonstrate trustworthiness and willingness to the team. The more difficult it is to get on the team, the greater the ability the team has to perform at a fringe level together. The ongoing development part provides important tension and responsibility for future growth. Beyond just the stagnation of skill development, Edgework is egalitarian and unites the group. This universal need for improvement creates an endless uniting force for vulnerable best efforts and the communication of feedback for that development. Every remarkable team in the world has more trust and willingness than unremarkable teams. And there's a reason these two characteristics are foundationally critical. And it's that they're required for fringe-level performances. Best efforts are difficult, by definition. People must be willing to go there. In addition, there must be enough trust in the system for people to operate at the edge of their ability. Ironically, this scary edge isn't just where best performances happen. It's also where failure shows up. And if you've got a culture where it's not worth it to give a best effort and fail, you've inadvertently normalized a culture that will systematically underperform. Here are a few words from the legendary coach, John Wooden. I coined my own definition of success, which is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. I tried to get across to that. My punishment will tell you, never heard me mention winning. Never mention winning. My idea is that you can lose when you outscore somebody in a game. 
and you can win when you're outscored. I've felt that way on certain occasions at various times. And I, w I just wanted to be able to be able to hold their head up after a game. I used to say that when, when a game is over and you see somebody that didn't know the outcome, I hope they couldn't tell by your actions uh, whether you outscored an opponent or the opponent outscored you. Um, uh, and th that's what really matters. If you make your effort to do the best you can regularly, uh, the results will be about what they should be. Not necessarily what you would want them to be, but they'll be about what they should. And only you will know whether you can do that. And that's what I wanted from them uh, uh, more than anything else. And as time went by and I learned more about other things, I, I think it worked a little better uh, as far as the results. But I wanted the, the score of a game to be the uh, byproduct uh, of these other things and, and not the end itself. I'll say this. Creating a developmental culture is hard but it's worth it. And here's the kicker. Deep down, we all want this. We all want to become our best and to be around people that support the pursuit of our excellence. The trouble is many of us are afraid. And that's where leadership comes in. We need you to lead. We need you to have the courage to build the systems that says it's okay to try your best here. I would like to thank our team, producer William Broughton and me, Logan Gelbrick. Original musical composition by Michael Rodriguez Graphic design by Nikki Grudadaria and directed by Ernesto Hurtado. The Hold the Standard podcast is a Rebel Talk Network production.